If you've got a Bible, turn to James chapter 4. We're getting to the end of the book of James. We've been going through a series called Untended Fires, based on a quote from a Christian author named Gail McDonald, who actually is from Boston, and once upon a time said, untended fires soon die out and become a pile of ashes. And uh, there are some things in our life that we need to let burn out, and there are some things in our life we need to stoke up. And that's what this series has kind of been talking about. As we get going, um, let me just say a couple of things really quickly, just housekeeping things. I'll make sure to say them at the end, but we want to make sure the folks who watch on Facebook Live uh, hear them, or the online church platform, or wherever it is that you watch these days. Um, next Sunday, we will not meet in person. Just remember, if you show up here at 1015, we will not be here. Um, say a little prayer over the building, but... Uh, in order just to get some things done to get the space ready for September 12th, which we're kind of calling like a relaunch Sunday, and because it's Labor Day weekend, we wanted to give people a breath. And I, I don't know if you're like me, but if there's a church service or I could go to a cookout, I typically feel a guilt that tells me I have to go to the church service. And so we want to remove that. We want, I want you to watch the message at some point next week, the music. It'll be, like, it'll be like when we were online only, okay? It'll be just like that. If you watch it next Sunday at 1015, I think that would be optimal. But if you don't, watch it later. If you want to watch it in a watch party, you want to say to a couple of friends, hey, you want to meet at my house? We're going to watch it together. I think it's great. I want you to watch it. We're finishing out this series next Sunday at 1015 and online. So the, the series will end online and then we'll start something new September 12th. So I want you to watch it. We just won't be here. I want to give you permission to take a break. And then I really think that sometimes like... <laughs> We can, get, we can just run from one thing to the next. And a church can do this, and we can also do this in our life. It's like we just move from one thing to the next. And I kind of want next Sunday just to be a pause. Like uh, in, the, in the Psalms, if you ever see that word, selah, that's what a selah is. It's just a pause. So consider next week our church's selah. We're just going to go, okay, Lord, we've had 99 days of summer. And now, believe it or not, from Sunday, September 12th to the last Sunday before Christmas, Guess how many days that is? 99 days. And so it's been 99 days of preparation for what I believe God wants to do over the next 99 days in your life and in the life of our church. All right? How many people know what a horcrux is? Can we put up the horcruxes? What is a horcrux, Ari? It's from Harry Potter. Can anybody name some of the horcruxes? You don't have to name them out loud. You can just list them. I think we even have an image of the horcruxes. You know, there's Tom Riddle's diary. There's some kind of a ring. There's a cup. There's a necklace. Uh, Harry was a horcrux and then the snake. Like, I love Harry Potter. If you don't know this about me, if you've never been here, never watched online, I think Harry Potter, other than the Bible, is the greatest literature that has ever been penned in human history. Uh, And so, do you like... Lies, do you like Harry Potter or no? You do? Okay. Um, back in the back. I uh, almost got a hallelujah out of Ari this morning when I started with Harry Potter, didn't I? Um, I love the Harry Potters. So there's a bad guy, if you've never watched them. Uh, his name is Voldemort, and he puts a part of his soul into these things called horcruxes. And it allows him that some of his being is in these different seven objects. Uh, and his being goes into these objects when he creates, uh, when he commits an act of murder. And so these sort of hold a part of his evil essence. Uh, they, essentially, the horcruxes are the splitting of his soul. And if you watch the movies or read the books, and the books are better than the movies, especially once you get to the third one, every time a horcrux dies, every time a horcrux gets killed, 
part of Voldemort's evil dies. So uh, evil cannot be killed until all the splintering of the evil are dealt with and reconciled. Every time a Horcrux dies, um, the good guys are one step closer to freedom and to defeating the enemy, Voldemort. So a Horcrux had to die for the potential of evil being defeated. Now, how many of you are like, dude, I don't care about Harry Potter. I don't care about Voldemort. I don't care about Dumbledore. I don't care about Gandalf. I don't care about Frodo, the Ring of Power. I don't care about any of that Aslan. I don't care. How many of you are like that? You can raise your hands. It's a safe space. Ed raised his. I saw Juliana raise. Anybody else? Juliana and Ed can make fun of the nerds after we get done today. All the nerds among us. Because uh, I'm right there. I'm a nerd. Uh, and we, so we say, man, that's crazy. That's just a crazy story. But listen, have you ever felt like your heart was divided? Have you ever felt like your soul was almost split? Like there's times, I'm not going to lie, where I sit over here and my soul can feel so split between wanting to love Christ and wanting to... <laughs> be thinking about something else that I literally can feel like a horcrux, like there's a part of me somewhere else. And, uh, and I want to tell you a truth. This isn't the big idea today, but it's a powerful idea. If Satan can't get your heart and if Satan can't get you to worship him, and nobody in here, I don't think, is a devil worshiper this morning. Like nobody's posing as a believer and going to go out of here and go to like a satanic church after. If Satan can't get you to worship him, the least he'd like to do is get you to love God with a divided heart. I think that's a better aim for him because he knows he's defeated. But if he can get you to walk out of here and love or worship God with a divided heart, then on some level he thinks he has won. And this isn't a new or unique problem. I'm going to read uh, James 4, 1 through 12 today as we begin to come down the home stretch on James. And let's, let's see what James is saying to remember he's writing to the people of God, most of them of Jewish descent, because of persecution. They've been scattered throughout Roman Empire cities. They've been there for a little bit now, and they're beginning to have some problems. And some of the things that he's talked about, you've been here, you heard Ed preach a couple of weeks ago about the taming of the tongue, but they were starting to backbite and uh, stab one another in the back. You've heard about that. We've heard about uh, how some of them are claiming to have faith, but their actions just didn't back up their profession of faith. We've talked about that. And so now he's really coming down the home stretch. He's getting, he's building toward the bigger issues. And here we go in James 4, 1 through 12. Now, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity or strife with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. So if you're beating yourself up, and I can see, I know some of you well enough to know some of you beat yourself up. You're like, man, I got a divided heart. Oh, man, I'm a terrible Christian. Oh, man, I'm a living horcrux. And like your body language is literally kind of shrinking down into nothing. Be encouraged by verse 6. But he gives more grace. However many times you sin, he can grace you one more time. However low you feel, his grace can reach even lower. 
Like, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And literally, bend the neck. Bend the neck. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's a promise. Draw near to God, and he will, also a promise, draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's a really big word in this conversation today. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy turned to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And that's a crazy verse. That's going to be one of the main ones. We'll get to it in a second. Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother judges or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, who, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let me say, first of all, that the Bible's a community book. Uh, we are the most individualistic nation that's ever existed. The Bible, not so much. Most Eastern people and Middle Eastern people are group thinkers. They're collectivist thinkers. So when James in verses 1 through 5 is saying you, he's saying y'all. Y'all have a divided heart. So what James is saying is, is not the problem like Nikki or Howard could have a heart. But it's like a horcrux that's divided. What he's saying is in the church, in the churches, in your towns, it would seem that there's not a unified heart. In other words, the problem is not just one person who might have a divided heart, but when Jesus looks at that local church, he would say they have a divided heart, and that's what he's getting at. In other words, like the strength of our testimony, the strength of our undividedness of heart is in how collectively undivided our heart is, not just how I am individually doing. Keep that in mind as we go today. Um, you know who doesn't have a divided heart in this passage, by the way, is the Lord. Jesus' heart's never divided. Man, Jesus' heart loves you as much today as he loved you yesterday and will love you just that much tomorrow, and it will never be divided. Jesus is never going to go, man, Jamie really messed up this week. Kind of loved him last week. I'm going to hold back 20% to protect myself in case he betrays me this week. Jesus' heart is never divided uh, praise the Lord. But let me share a couple of things with you. First problem that James lays out here is we want it all. I can literally hear Queen singing, I want it all. And I can also hear the old Skilo song, I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl who looked good. I would call her. Like I can hear both of these things playing in my mind. Like we want it all. James is telling us we want, like, we want everything. We do. We want everything. We want satisfaction. We want meaning. We want respect. We want peace. We want happiness. And James is writing to a scattered people who are in new cities with new opportunities before them and new struggles, longing for peace and prosperity, fitting in with the world, but no longer standing out in Christ. That's who he's writing. People who want it all. I talked with a friend of mine the other day who's not a follower of Jesus. And he, and I think I've told you this on a Sunday, so forgive me for repeating. He said, I'm really nervous. This guy's not a follower of Christ about what we're going to see this fall. And I said, what do you mean? He said, we've got people who were pent up for 15 months who now are coming out with stimulus checks 
into a world where we can just run free for a summer. He was like, my fear is that people are going to do and buy and go and experience and do all this. And then they're going to get to the week after Labor Day and they're going to go, I thought that would feel better. I thought that would let me feel something different. See, we want it all, but the, the world cannot provide it all. And God knows it. Like, there's nothing wrong with wanting it all. There's nothing wrong with wanting a life of happiness and meaning and peace and deep relationships and fulfillment and contentment. There's nothing wrong with that. Those are good and God-given desires. The problem is when we look for something that only the creator can give us from a created thing, we always end up in a mess. And that's what James is writing to here. That's when we get horcrux sold when we begin to look for meaning somewhere other than the Lord. And that leads to the second thing. If we want it all, here's the, here's the problem. Our desire to be satisfied and the world's desire for us to be constant consumers are incompatible. The goal, especially in a capitalist society, for all of us is for us to buy more stuff. The goal of the world is for us to constantly consume But God's desire is for us to be satisfied and ultimately to be satisfied in him. So you've got to understand that every Black Friday, the world is trying to sell you a worldview. If you buy this, you'll make these people happy. You'll be this. You can post this on Instagram. You can do this and everything will be good. Like that's what Black Friday is. In college football, which I know New Englanders don't know much about, it starts up next weekend, technically. Like, my team and Kayla's team play against one another at 7.30 on Saturday night. Please pray for my team. Pray against her team. Okay, like, uh, in the South, like, and I don't sense this as much with the NFL, but in the South, like, your your, uh, joy of life is literally built into whether or not your college football team wins. And if you go to a game, it's like, 90,000 people dressed in war paint and chanting and screaming and expending all of their emotional energy into three and a half hours of watching 18 to 22-year-olds throw around an inflated piece of a cow's behind. Like, that is how it works. Like, but there's so much of your meaning in there. And if your team, if, if you happen to be the University of Alabama and you win it almost every year, guess what? The next year when the calendar comes around, you still want want to win it again because the world will desire, will push you toward a feeling of constant consumption. It's like magnets. Owen, I tried to bring these two magnets this morning that Owen has. He loves them. He loves them so much he's hidden them because he knows we love them too and he doesn't want us to find them. But he's got these magnets and they're really amazing at pushing against one another. Our desire to be satisfied And the world's desire for us to be a constant consumer are like opposite ends of a magnet. They will never meet. You will never buy something and go, cool, I'm happy now. You will never get into a relationship if the relationship is going to give you meaning and get there and go, cool, I'm settled. You will never get the job promotion and go, oh, I'm totally content, nothing to do. Like, it's impossible. That's The world is not set up for you to feel like that. That's what James is writing about here. And so there's a song Natalie was singing, a song this week by an old Christian group from 25, 30 years ago. Uh, they, They sing this song where they say, this world has nothing for me and this world has everything, all that I could want and nothing that I need. 
And man, that is such a powerful statement about the world that we live in. Uh, my granddad used to say, they don't make them like they used to. My mom is redoing her kitchen this year. It's taking longer than I wished. Um, she had to have her stove and oven replaced. They are 50 years old. Can I tell you, whatever she buys, it is not going to last 50 years. Because people who make stoves and ovens and refrigerators and dishwashers realize that if they last 50 years, guess what? We can't sell them another one. And so now they're made to last five to 10 years. My televisions, as they get thinner and nicer, are also getting to where they have a shorter and shorter shelf life. The, the bulbs that are supposed to last for, I've never, those stupid bulbs that when you buy them, they're like, this is going to last 10 years. Has anybody, has anybody have one that's lasted 10 years? They don't last 10 years. They don't make things like they used to because, because they have to sell you more. And James knows this 2,000 years ago. It's the law of diminishing returns. It's why the drug addict always has to have another hit, a bigger hit, and a more quick hit. It's why the person who's buying stuff always has to buy more. It's, um, it's like whack-a-mole. It's like the person who seeks the thrill has to seek the next thrill. There's always a roller coaster that drops harder, that goes longer, that goes faster, all of that stuff. It's like gambling. I went to Mohegan Sun the other night for a, the first time just for a minute. Somebody said, why'd you go to Mohegan Sun? I was like, because I had a Ben and Jerry's that was open at 1115. I was down in the neighborhood and we needed ice cream. And so, man, there's just something that is inherently sad to me about a casino where people's lives are out of control. And there were kids junior's age riding around Mohegan Sun by the slot machines at 11.15 at night. And I was like, law of diminishing returns right here. Like we were not made to do this. Our desire to be satisfied and the world's desire for us to be constant consumers are incompatible. When our goal is getting it all, I think we have a slide up of this. When our goal is getting it all apart from Christ, we never will. If your goal is to get it all, Queen, I want it all. I want it all. You never will apart from Christ. If I have learned anything, if our goal is to get it all apart from Christ, we never will. And it can't satisfy, James says in verse 3, and it alienates us from God. He says in verse 4, to be a friend with the world is to be at enmity with God. And, it, and this is the crazy part. It pains the spirit of God in us. Verse 5, do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? Do you ever have a girlfriend or boyfriend when you were in high school or middle school and you broke up and then they got a boyfriend or girlfriend and you had to sit there in the cafeteria and watch them? Did this ever happen for anybody? It's like part of you died. You're like, look at her over there eating that corn dog and that uh, delicious corn that I've never had corn as good as elementary school corn. Like, look at her. How dare her eat that corn dog and that corn and act like everything's okay. That is how the spirit of God feels about us. When God sees us running around on him, man, he dies inside. He yearns jealously for us to love him and love nothing and no one else quite the same way. So let me ask you, what is currently or who is currently competing with Jesus for your heart's affections? 
Who or what is currently competing with Jesus for your heart's affections? The third thing I think that James tells us is that God is jealous for you. We sing that song, he loves us here uh, with some frequency. Starts out, he is jealous for me, loves like a hurricane, I am the tree. Man, God is jealous for you as we just read. God is not mad at you. God's not mad at your family. God's not mad at your friends. He's not angry. He's not frustrated. God's not giving up on you. God longs for you. God is the father of the parable of the prodigal son, who the son, it says, is in the far country, in the far country. And then he comes to his senses. He begins to come home. And and Jesus is telling the story. And he says, while he was still a long way off, As if the dad every night is getting to higher ground on the property, climbing up to see, is my kid coming home tonight? And that's the Lord. He loves us. He gets to the highest ground to see us the moment we turn and begin to come home. He's looking. He's waiting. He's longing. He's ready to celebrate. And some of us, by the way, get into the far country by rebellion. And some of us kind of default into the far country. Like some of us have shorter attention spans and can't focus very well. And we look up and we're like, dang, I got a little bit of a ways from the Lord. How did I get so far away? You're like, I didn't even mean to do that. It's like like being at the beach and, you know, your towel and your chair and your umbrella are here and you're playing and the tide brings you down and you finally look up and you're like, I'm a football field away from my towel and my umbrella and my stuff. Because the culture, the tide of culture and constant consuming is always going to pull you down the beach further away from the Lord. And yet, no matter how far you go, God is jealous for you. And that leads to the last thing I'm going to say before I'll get into the practical part of this. Our desire, and this is so good, like There's not many things I'm going to tell you that are worth memorizing, but this is one of them. Our desire to be satisfied and God's desire to be glorified are compatible. Our desire to be satisfied and God's desire to be glorified are compatible. They're interconnected. They are the same thing. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. See, there's some people who think that they've got to glorify God, but that's not really that fun. But the way God built the universe is that we are most satisfied in him when he is most glorified in us. And we'll come back to that in a moment. In other words, like those magnets, your satisfaction and the world's desire for constant consumption will never connect. But your desire for satisfaction and God's desire for glory totally connect. They totally connect. They completely connect. When I glorify God only, I am satisfied. When I am satisfied, I I glorify God. That's how it works. So if you're a Christian and you're dissatisfied, are you glorifying God with all you got? Is your life bringing glory to him? If you're like, man, I thought this would feel a certain way following Christ. It doesn't feel like that. Is there anything that is kind of like not on the table for him to have in love. When he is most glorified, I am most satisfied. When I am most satisfied, he is most glorified. Every time we ever see a magic trick, Natalie goes, 
how. If, if you ever get a chance, watch a magic show with Natalie. It blo- every time, it blows her mind. You could do like the disappearing, disappearing finger trick. How did you do that? How? I can just hear, how? That's what she always says, how? Uh, so how do we get satisfied in Christ and get an undivided heart? And I'm thankful that in verse 6 to the end, James tells us. The first thing he says is that we can know that in Christ, uh, God did the hard part. All the heavy lifting here, Jesus has already did. Jesus has already done it. He gives more grace. That's the best news. That's the gospel. He gives more grace. The hardest part of being satisfied in God, Jesus already did. Romans 8.1 says, um, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for anyone in Christ. If you feel condemned, if you sin and you feel condemned, that is a false voice. That is not the voice of God. The way God works is in conviction. And if Saul sins and he feels condemned, that is not the Lord. That is the enemy condemning. How God's spirit works is it says, Saul, you sinned against me. And Saul says, Lord, I sure did. Whew, I'm sorry, Lord. Thank you for dying for me, Jesus. Will you forgive me? And you never think twice about it. You live differently. That's how God's spirit works. God did the hard part. Second thing we do, though, in verse 7, we submit to God. Now, this is the trick, right? How many of you have ever had to have a financial coach? Anybody? Nope. How many of you have ever had to have a counselor, a marriage counselor? Like Natalie and I have done both. Yeah. How many of you have ever gone to the gym and had a trainer? All right. That was a few more. How many of you have ever had a life coach? I've had a couple of life coaches before. That's the best. Uh, I love doing all those things. You know how those things work well? As if you submit to the plan. If you get a trainer and he says, now you got to do 100 crunches a day and 50 push-ups a day, and you got to not eat this, and you go home and you're like, I'm going to have a bag of Doritos, I'm going to have two Hershey bars, and I'm going to sit here and Netflix and chill for the next four hours. Guess what? It doesn't work. And in this idea of being satisfied in the Lord and him being glorified in us, if we won't submit to him on his terms, this does not work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. We'll continue to be double-minded. We've got to work the plan and trust God to work his plan knowing we are loved. September 12th, everything changes for our church. I met at 9 o'clock this morning with a few people. When you get here on September 12th, if the weather's good, there'll be people who are standing outside kind of greeting you, helping visitors show up and know where to go. Starting September 20th, we're going to have small groups again. We might have a digital group, but they're mostly going to be in-person groups here and at people's homes. Um, I want to encourage you, starting September 8th, we're going to have our photography project that we do every year. It's going to be really fun this year. I'm praying that that season is going to be full of faithful attendance. You have less places to vacation because you have to be at work on Mondays and at work on Fridays. I'm praying that the next few months are going to be a time of spiritual growth, watching you begin to flex some spiritually and grow some spiritual muscles. I'm praying it's a time of giving and tithing. I'm praying it's a time of you and inviting your friends. And here's what I'm asking, because I really believe every bit of that is birthed out of what God wants for our church. I'm going to ask you to work the plan with us. In just a few moments after we get done, we're going to meet with people who are going to be small group leaders. And some people might go, I think we should do it this way. I'm going to say, will you just trust me? Can we just work the plan together for what God wants us to be? 
when it comes to first impression, someone walking through the fence and walking all the way in here. We talked about a plan this morning. Can we 